Hey everybody and welcome back. My name is Robert Fleming. I'm one of the partners at the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. And I'm sitting here with one of the other partners, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We're talking about elder law issues. Elizabeth, I thought today we would kind of review something that we first wrote about on our website. It's actually been six years ago. It surprises me uh, that it was that long ago. At the time, we wrote back-to-back newsletter articles about the top 10 reasons somebody should skip a living trust and instead just rely on a will, Uh, and then the top 10 reasons somebody should do a living trust instead of just relying on a will. I thought we would do the same thing in in this week's podcast and next week's podcast. Sound okay to you? I think it sounds like a great idea, Robert. And when we were chit-chatting a little bit about some of the newsletters that we refer back to, these are two of the newsletters that I use on a regular basis when I'm discussing the issues that clients have related to developing an estate plan and whether or not the estate plan should include a revocable living trust. Many people who I meet with every day, Robert, really don't need a trust. And in some cases, there are reasons to do them, and others, they just won't yield that much of a benefit. And so, as you know, at Fleming and Curdy, we don't sell trusts. It's not something that we do. And so somebody who comes in and says that they want a trust, uh, that doesn't mean that we're all of a sudden going to agree right away. We, we want to talk over that decision in detail because once you have a trust, it's really a pain in the neck to get rid of it. And usually, if you have a trust, there's no good reason to get rid of it. So uh, you're making a one-time decision when you decide to to rely on a living trust. Well, let's look at the top 10 reasons you might skip a living trust um, as we kind of went through them in the newsletter article. The first, number 10, I guess the last reason, is that it might actually make sense to want your estate to be subjected to the probate process. Why in the world would you want to have a probate? You know, Robert, sometimes people who have young children decide that they want the supervision of the court when it comes to the distribution and the settlement of their estate. It's not uncommon that when I meet with people who have young kids, they may love their families and trust their families, but they say, you know, I just want to have a court oversee the administration of the estate. That's one of the reasons when I meet with people, they decide that they do want to go through the probate process. And another advantage, if you will, to a probate is that it's a process, it is a method for cutting off potential creditors. So if you're a professional, you're a doctor or a lawyer or an architect or someone who has the potential of, for instance, uh, malpractice actions, on your death, those malpractice actions can still be filed for a period of time. The probate process helps cut those off. Now, it's worth saying that you can do that with a living trust as well, but you can only do it as to the assets in the living trust, not your other assets that bypass the probate process. So there's actually some people, there are actually some people for whom a probate uh, is not a bad thing. It, It actually can be, it can actually work some benefit. Uh, here's another reason that <clears throat> that I think some people might skip the living trust. Darn things are complicated. Well, Robert, I would agree. No matter how hard we try to make the language that we use in our estate planning documents straightforward and use plain language, they can be complicated to decipher. And we find that people who come and sit down and review their trust with us oftentimes continue to get tripped up on 
how the trust will work, what the trust terms actually say in the document. And so even the very smartest of clients that we have, trust can just be complicated. A lot of the trusts that we see, mostly from other law firms, are 20, 30, even 40 pages long. Ours, I need to say, tend to be half that long. Um, we, we tend to try to write in something approximating the English language and, uh, and some, with some succinctness. But, um, but if you really, really want to understand your documents, maybe a living trust isn't the best way to do that unless you're really going to devote a lot of time to understanding them. What about uh, the person whose personal circumstance is completely stable? They're, they're not going to get remarried. They're not going to have more kids. They're, they're not going to uh, have to deal with a death in the family because they're already a widow or a widower. Um, somebody like that, maybe they don't need a trust? I would agree, Robert. I meet with people all the time who may not have a spouse, may not have children. They want their estate to go to charity or charitable organizations. These folks don't necessarily need to have a trust. I also meet with people regularly who may only have a single child, and they may decide that they want their estate to be distributed first to their spouse if that person survives him or her, and if not, then to the single surviving child. And if the child is not then surviving, maybe to charity. So there are some people who's very straightforward and really to include the, I would say, all the bells and whistles of a trust don't necessarily yield a benefit. And, and I think it's important for us to observe that we're not talking about it being a mistake to have a trust if you have a simple situation. It's a, it, so much of the trust decision, trust versus will decision, is a cost-benefit analysis. And so in some circumstances where you have a pretty simple um, situation, maybe there isn't enough benefit to the trust to justify the cost, both the dollar cost and the, uh, and the um, management cost. Speaking of which, the number seven reason maybe you don't want to trust is because you are such a good organized, um, responsible citizen. You have everything in a single folder that somebody could pick up and figure out all of your assets and figure out all of the beneficiary designations and know exactly what to do. Maybe that kind of person is not really going to benefit as much from having a trust. That's right, Robert. And, and sometimes that we see people who just don't like paper. And so having the additional paperwork that goes along with the trust, the beneficiary designation forms, you know, we talk to people about how they may want to update their accounts and make their brokerage account an asset of the trust. You know, just dealing with that paperwork and getting through it can sometimes just be a hurdle and a nuisance and not necessarily always yield a benefit. And, and we're really talking about, uh, in your description, Elizabeth, the flip sides, people who love paper and are so well organized they don't need to do the trust, and people who hate paper and are so poorly organized that the, that the action of doing the trust can be kind of overwhelming to them. And Robert, these are, when we talk about paper and we talk about trusts and we talk about complexities, keep in mind that when you do have a trust, there is a whole host of procedural issues that you have to navigate when someone dies. And those procedural issues involve more paper. Next kind of person who maybe doesn't want to have a trust is the person who is, let's, let's say kindly, thrifty. Uh, maybe we could say cheap. You don't want to spend the money to do a trust. 
Well, Robert, so I talked to people a little bit about the costs of sticking with a will rather than using a pour-over will and a trust, and, and what that means as far as dollars and cents. Nine times out of ten, somebody who settles with an estate plan that does not include a trust usually has a savings of anywhere from $700 to maybe $1,500 to $2,000. There's really a significant step up in cost most of the time once we start incorporating a trust into somebody's plan. And the kind of practical reality is if you create a trust now and you live another 20 years and we need to make several rounds of changes to your trust, each revision that we do is probably going to be more expensive for you than it would have been if you didn't have a trust. So it's not just the one-time cost. There's some, not really maintenance cost, but some ongoing cost for, for having had the trust in place. What about people who really love beneficiary designations? Oh, I know those people, Robert. Those folks come in, they like to tinker with and update their beneficiary designations on a regular basis. They do not want to be bound by the terms of a trust as it relates to references to particular accounts. They don't like the idea of consolidating assets into the trust and prefer to use separate beneficiary designations on each asset. These are people who creating a trust for can sometimes be a problematic exercise. Right, because people often have, are sort of fixed in their head about this asset goes to these three people, this asset goes to these two people, and it's very hard to, to break people out of that mold sometimes. And Robert, we're listening to my dog, Duncan. He really doesn't like trust, if you haven't <laughs> noticed. So the next category of person who maybe doesn't need to do a living trust is somebody whose assets are truly uncomplicated. They, they really just have a house, one bank account, an IRA. And maybe they can use beneficiary designations for all that, hearkening back to the previous point. Uh, and, and maybe they don't need a trust because their assets are so simple. Maybe the bank account is, is, you know, a $2 million bank account, and the IRA is a $3 million IRA. So it's not really a question of the size of the estate so much as it is the kinds of assets, correct? Correct, Robert. And I will tell you, I oftentimes see people who may have some money in a checking account. That's where their Social Security goes. And they also have their largest asset, which is their home. And those are the two primary assets that the person has and they assume that to avoid probate you have to have a trust in order to put your house into the trust and avoid probate that's the only way to do it and those people are terrific candidates for a beneficiary deed Robert and and what we tell those people is they are absolutely correct that their estate will need to go through probate unless they either have a trust to hold the house or their house is distributed using a beneficiary deed Again, they have simple assets, simple in the sense that they're not complicated in number or type. Right. The next category of people for whom a trust might not be an appropriate choice 
is people whose estates are not just uncomplicated, but very small. And there's a magic number of $75,000 in Arizona. What, what is that magic number? Robert, if your estate is above that magic number, then you're required to open a probate unless the assets have beneficiary designations. If your estate is below that number, and remember, this is Arizona law, so we're not talking about the small estate affidavits and the limitations in other states, but a small estate affidavit in the state of Arizona can be used to collect an account or accounts if the size of somebody's assets are below $75,000. This cannot include real estate. There is a special rule for real estate in addition to the $75,000. So it's not exactly a simple affidavit procedure, but it's not a very complicated procedure. You do have to go through the court, but it's a kind of a summary probate for real estate that's worth less than $100,000. And that's net $100,000. And it's also relying on the assessor's records. So if your assessed value of your house minus any encumbrances is less than 100000 Well, there is a kind of a summary probate administration that can help you avoid the probate process on your death. Here's the number one reason somebody might choose not to do a living trust, uh, and it involves um, a term that we sometimes use somewhat um, with somewhat black humor. We talk about our people, our clients' estate plans maturing, by which we mean they might die. And if you're not going to die, in fact, in the next five years or so, we, we want you to come back and talk to us about your estate plan and update it in about five years anyway. Uh, of course, we don't know if we're going to die in the next five years, but for some people, they're young enough that the odds of them dying in the next five years are pretty small. So I often tell clients, Elizabeth, that I just don't think they're a good candidate for a living trust because they're too young. And how old is that? Well, I'm soon to be 70, and I tend to think that young is 69 or thereabouts. But uh, but anybody who's under age 40 or 50 or something like that is just not too likely to die in the in the life expectancy term of their estate planning documents. Well, Robert, I couldn't agree more. I meet with young, healthy families, and the really the bells and a whistle that a trust brings is not something they need, especially when they are just starting starting out to have, you know, having their first children and trying to organize their estates. Doing that, using things like beneficiary designations, um, what's called often a testamentary trust within a will. Um, these are all options that are alternatives to creating a revocable living trust that is a totally separate document and for those people keeping it simple they're young and healthy we try and try and do that and avoid using a trust well there you have it there are our top 10 reasons maybe you don't need a living trust next time we do our elder law issues podcast we're going to tell you the top 10 reasons you do need to consider doing a trust and, uh, and then you're going to get to balance those two and make a decision for your own circumstance, which is what we're all about. We want to give you the information, let you make the decision. I've been chatting with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. My name's Robert Fleming. We are two of the partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. This is Elder Law Issues, and please join us again next week for our follow-up conversation.